he said, you cannot fight back. You cannot retaliate. You cannot say anything. I don't care what they do to you. And he said, what do you mean? You want a baseball player who doesn't have the guts enough to stand up and speak out and fight back? And Branch Rickey said, yes. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Jackie Robinson from Victim to Victor. As we talk about the cultural impact of Jackie Robinson's groundbreaking career. We're thrilled to present this program in partnership with Florida Humanities as part of a specially curated podcast series called Created Equal and Breathing Free which will air right here on Village Squarecast through the end of 2021. We've got an excellent lineup of programs for you in this series, so thanks for joining us, and thanks to Florida Humanities for making it possible. All right, this Jackie Robinson program took place on the 100th anniversary of his birth in January of 2019. We have an incredible panel here to explore the impact of Jackie Robinson breaking Major League Baseball's color barrier in 1947. Our panel will discuss why that was such a momentous breakthrough and how it laid the groundwork for the later success of the Civil Rights Movement. And we will consider what we can still learn today from Robinson's example as we continue to wrestle with racial equality in our country. By the way, this was a crossover event with Local Color. That's our series of programs where we talk about race issues among a diverse group. Our facilitator for this program is Bill Maddox of James Madison Institute and also Village Square board member. Bill is going to give you a great introduction to our panel members. So let's get to it. Here's Bill Maddox. Thank you all for coming out tonight. On this day, 100 years ago, not far from here, less than 25 miles away, Jackie Robinson was born in a sharecropper's home outside of Cairo, Georgia. Robinson lived there for only a year. His parents split up, and his mother and the older siblings and Jackie moved to Pasadena, California, where he spent most of his childhood. At the end of his high school days, Jackie made the single biggest mistake of his entire life and went to the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, instead of doing what he should have done, which is to go to USC and play for the Trojans. (laughs) I'm the father of two Trojans, I'm sorry. Okay. At UCLA, get this, he lettered in four different sports, football, basketball, track, and baseball. And baseball, arguably, was his weakest sport. So he was a a multi-sport athlete, who distinguished himself greatly in more than just baseball. But around this same time, one of Jackie's older siblings, his brother Mac, was making a name for himself. And that's where, in many ways, our story today, tonight, is going to pick up. Um, I'm joined here on the panel by Fred Flowers, who many of you know. Fred's a longtime Tallahassean 
who basically was the Jackie Robinson of Florida State University, and we are delighted to have him with us tonight. To his right is Dr. Linda Walden. Linda is a cousin of Mac and Jackie Robinson, and get this, she is also a cousin of Fred Flowers. <laughs> so, I don't think there's anyone in America that can make that same claim to be both a cousin of Jackie and of the Jackie Robinson of FSU. But we are delighted to have Linda here. She's a medical doctor, had a, a family practice in Cairo, also lives now in southwest Georgia and continues to do practice medicine there. And then at the far end is my friend Bob Sanchez. Many of you know Bob has a distinguished career in journalism, is a Pulitzer Prize winner, who got his start writing for the Florida Flambeau back in the early 1960s. He went on to teach at Florida A&M, has also taught at Florida High, and uh, has followed this story and others like it much of his life. He writes columns about all sorts of things, has expertise in Florida history and, and other things beyond just sports. But he's a baseball lover like I am and was a perfect person to complete our panel. So please join me in welcoming all of these distinguished panelists. All right, so Linda, I want to start with you and just say, who? tell us a little bit more about Mac. I know we're here to celebrate Jackie and we'll do a lot of that. But Mac's story is one that is often overlooked and, and uh, not known. So tell us a little bit more about Mac and about your family. Most certainly. It's a great pleasure to be here, first of all, to be with you on this special grand day as we recognize an American hero. And not only just Jackie, but Mac as well. Mac was Jackie's older brother. He was only five years older than Jackie. He was the knee baby in the family. And Mac um, also was not just a cousin. He was my uncle. He married my mother's sister later on in life. And so he became my uncle. And I got to know him and know more about Jackie through my uncle Mac. And one thing that people don't realize, um, Jackie was a phenomenal athlete, but so was Uncle Mac as well. He uh, participated in the 1936 Berlin Olympics with Jesse Owens. And it was my Uncle Mac that beat Jesse Owens in all the preliminaries before the Olympics. <laughs> and really, seriously. And when he won the silver medal, um, he and Jesse, Jesse won the gold medal. He won the silver medal and he won it. Jesse beat him just by a few milliseconds. And if you ever go to the records, it'll tell you it was just a few milliseconds how he beat him. And my Uncle Mac often said if he had been able to afford better shoes, he would have beat him because he had worn his shoes out. And, you know, back in 1936, when the Berlin Olympics took place, you know, we didn't have sponsors like they do now to sponsor all these athletes with the best of everything, you know. And so Uncle Mac won the silver medal. And I remember him telling me the story when he and Jesse received their medal. You know, Hitler uh, was the one that was supposed to present those medals. Well, Hitler hated Jews and he hated blacks. And he walked off the stage when the two of them won. And it was the next person in command who handed them their medals. And Uncle Mac, you know, he came back after representing the United States of America. And this was in 1936. Just to show you how things were. You would expect someone who won a medal like that, he and Jesse, for the United States, that he would have come back to a grand affair of people really cheering him on. And he often said when he got off the train in Pasadena, there was no one there. But his mother, his siblings, and that was it. That was it. 
Now, there was minute, no big fanfare. Now, a minute ago, when you mentioned your mother, you mm-hmm. gestured, and lo and behold, you have yes. other members of your yes. family here. Yes. How about taking a second and just rec- recognizing yes. them, if you would? Yes, I have my mother's, uh, Lula Hatley Walden, and Uncle Mac married her sister, <laughs> Jesse's brother. And we lived in New York where I was born, uh, in Queens, New York, and where Jackie and, and Rachel lived in St. Albans. And that's where we moved to St. Albans. In fact, most of the family members that migrated from Georgia that went to New York lived in that same area. And uh, so I wasn't born at the time when Jackie played from 1947 to 1957. It was right after that that I was born. But my mom and dad would often go see him play. And she would often tell me stories about how things were and and how the people reacted and treated Jackie, which if you want me to get into, we can get into later. Yeah, we, we will as we go. You grew up, though, it's important to recognize, yeah. in New York, but then eventually made her way to southwest Georgia, where she lives now, and where Linda's been very instrumental in seeing the birthplace of Jackie Robinson and other uh, key points of interest around Cairo recognized and commemorated. So we are in debt to you for yes. preserving that, getting it on the historic registry, getting Jackie Robinson Memorial Highway named, and other things of that nature. Yeah, well, I actually finished school. I went to grade school in Sebring, Florida. And in Sebring, Florida, I was the first of three to integrate those schools back in those days, myself. And where is the gentleman here was from Sebring. But anyway, yes, Mr. Mason, he was in my classmate. There was three of us, and the two Southfold children were. We were the first three to integrate in that Highlands. County. So, so this is just a family of yes. pioneers <laughs> breaking barriers everywhere they go. Yes. All right, but Fred, you want to remind us that even before uh, Jackie and Mac, there were other athletes, um, African-American athletes that were gaining prominence. Tell us a little bit about that. Bill told me I should stay seated when I talk. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm not following instructions very well. <laughs> But there's so much that I would like to say. First of all, I want to thank Bill and the Square for putting this on. I stand before you today as a member of the Florida State University Civil Rights Institute, and I see some of our members present. All right. T- tell us, tell us about black athletes before Jackie Robinson. We'll okay. In order to understand the role of the black athlete in America and in Jackie Robinson, you can't start with Jackie Robinson. Um, you got to go back a hundred years. That would take us to 1847. Let's go back another hundred years. That would take you to 1747. Let's go back another hundred. That'll take you to the year 1647, which is the origin of the agricultural economy and the slave industry in America. So you have to go back to the gains of the slave plantation to understand the role of the black athlete in America. So what do I mean by that? <laughs> During slavery, gangs were an important part of the survival of the slaves. So there were all sorts of games. Horse races, foot races, strongman contests, boxing, and wrestlers. So during the 300 years during the slavery uh an institution of slavery, you had the rise of certain premier athletes on the slave plantation. So just use your imagination with me. You can imagine the master of the plantation in Cairo calling the master of a plantation in Albany saying, my bucks are faster than your bucks. 
No, they're not. Let's have a contest. And so wagering on the slave contest was big business among the slave owners. But the money didn't accrue to the people who performed. It accrued to the slave owners. So the importance of understanding slavery connects to the rise of the first wave of great black athletes. And as I look at this horse, that's right on point because the first wave of black athletes was the black jockey. The year 1875 was a great year in American history for the creation of the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which gave newly created rights to the former slaves. But in 1875, that was the first running of the Kentucky Derby. There were 15 riders. 13 of them were black, including the winner, Oliver Wendell, I believe. So from 1800s to the 1900s, the black jockey were the highest paid, the most celebrated athletes in America. That's very significant now because they disappeared. That's very instructive to what might happen today. That happened in golf. At one time, the black caddy was the dominant force. They disappeared. So when you talk about Jackie Robinson, you got to go back to the beginning. In 1901, the greatest Cyclist in the world was a black man named Major Thompson. He dominated the world of cycling internationally from 1900 to 1901. So now we're coming up to the role of Jackie Robinson. I'm trying to place him in the proper historical perspective from which he came. So I'm wearing a hat now, the Negro League. And with me also wearing that hat, is a great baseball player named Alfred Washington, who's also wearing the Negro League hat. But I'm going to try to respond directly to one of your questions about American Legion Ball. Let's say oh, that. Cause say we, that. We, we, here's what we're going to do just um, for, for all of you to kind of help us uh, follow. We're going to spend the first part of our time looking at Jackie Robinson's life and, and his baseball career. Spend some time then looking at Fred Flowers and the lives and careers of many of those who followed after Jackie. And then we'll spend some time uh, reflecting on what we can learn from these athletes and um, where we stand kind of today. We'll have opportunity for each of you if you'd like to um, ask questions. But I want to stop where you are and pull Bob into the conversation and ask this, Bob. Okay, so we know of Joe Lewis and other great black athletes, Mac and Jesse uh, Owens and others, that distinguished themselves, that got attention, as well as some that, whose stories are not well known and, and that Fred was reminding us of. Help us then understand why Jackie Robinson's breaking of the baseball color barrier in 1947 was so significant. If there were all these other athletes before him, what was the big deal? Well, until on up through the 40s, baseball really was the, the nation's national pastime. Uh, in many respects, uh, boxing, horse racing, and baseball were much bigger than pro football or even college football, which was pretty much centered with the Ivy Leagues and Notre Dame and the service academies. So uh, people were, this was before the age of TV also. In 1947, the year Jackie Robinson broke into uh, the major leagues, there were only 44,000 TV sets in the whole United States. And there were only six TV stations on the air in 1946, the year before he broke the color line. Three in New York City, one in Chicago, one in Philadelphia, and one in Schenectady, New York, because that's where GE was. So radio was very important. 
the sport of baseball was very important. It filled a lot of time on radio. So that's one reason it was so significant. This was just the year after President Truman desegregated the armed forces. Jack A. Robinson had fought during World War II in segregated outfits and came home to a still segregated country. And luckily, President Truman had the courage to desegregate the armed forces. But the, the context of what happened in 1947 is that the country was very different than from what it is now. And in, in the array of sports, baseball was still king. So baseball is king. It's the national pastime. It's the game most followed by most people. And lo and behold, it allows an African-American for the first time in the 20th century to enter the ranks and to play. So Jackie, as you mentioned, was uh, had served in the military during that time between UCLA and his entry. He spent a year in the Negro Leagues playing for the Kansas City Monarchs. And then he gets signed by uh, Branch Rickey. And by the way, while he was in the military, Martin Luther King would, would later say of Jackie that he was a sit-inner before there were sit-ins, that he was a freedom rider before there were freedom rides. And guess what? He was, in a certain sense, Rosa Parks before there was Rosa Parks. Because while he was in the military, he at one point was uh, instructed to go to the back of, the, of a bus that he was traveling in, in a city, and refused to do so, and got himself in a little bit of trouble, much like Rosa did, ends up being discharged from the military, and goes on to play ball for the Kansas City Monarchs, gets the attention of Branch Rickey, the owner of the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, and uh, Rickey takes him and says, I want to sign you to, uh, he thinks, Robinson thinks that the meeting has been scheduled because there's rumors that Branch Rickey is going to start a Negro League team, but instead Branch Rickey says, no, I want you to come play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And so the question I have for you, Linda, is, why does Branch Rickey, of all the possible players that he could have chosen, why does he pick Jackie Robinson? What was it about Jackie that caused Rickey to say, this is the guy that I want to make this historic change? Well, first of all, as you mentioned earlier, uh, J- Jackie played for the Kansas City Monarchs, the uh, Negro League, and um, he had scouts. Branch Ritchie had scouts to go out and see who he could find. And he looked at Jackie and the way he played, and Jackie was pretty good um, in baseball. You know, he was good at stealing bases. Um, he was good at distracting the pitcher. But one thing that really interested him more so was that Jackie was one that was very strong-willed. He was one who had a lot of courage. He was outspoken. And he was just a very fierce person and educated and so he had him to come to his office from what I was told. And he told him what his, you know, plans were that he was interested in signing him with the Montreal. I think it was Montreal, uh, Royals. Royals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Canada. And so Jackie did so well with the Montreal and Canada in, um, 1946. And he brought him back and he said, you know, Jackie, I really want to sign you on with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But he said, there's one thing. And Jackie was like, well, what is it? He said, well, if I sign you on, you know, you'll be the first African-American, the first black to play in Major League Baseball. And you're going to encounter a lot of uh, hatred, a lot of discrimination. But there's one thing you can't do. And he said, well, what is that? He said, you can't fight back. You can't retaliate. 
And he said, well, you mean you want me to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers? And despite how I might be treated, you don't want me to do anything? And Branch Rickey said, no. He said, understand, if you fight back, it's just going to set your people back another 10 years before they are given another chance to break the color barrier like you're going to do. And he said, another 10, he said, yeah, it'll be probably another 10 years because what people will say is you're not ready. Even though you did nothing wrong, even though they were the wrongs, the people mistreating you, they would say, well, blacks are just not ready yet. So that's one thing that happened with Jackie. When he broke the color barrier, he signed him on. Jackie was isolated. Many of his teammates wouldn't speak to him. In fact, they went to Branch Rickey and told Branch Rickey that they would like to be traded to another team because they didn't want to play on a team with a black man. And Branch said, well, you can, you can go elsewhere, but I'm not about to trade you. And he went through this for a good year or two of insults, even his wife, Rachel. And I tell people, you know, he was married. He married Rachel in 1946. And behind every great man, there is truly a great woman. Had it not been for Rachel by his side, as he went through all of those insults and discrimination and hatred and threats, death threats, and things thrown at him, he was hit several times with the, with the ball when they would throw the ball to him to bat. And nobody did anything. When he sat in the dugout, he was sitting by himself. But one thing is that Rachel was there by his side to help him through all of this. And it was not easy. He was stressed. And as a physician, I see people dying from stress in this day and age. And I can only imagine what he went through, which was much, much more than what we're going through now. So, yes, Jackie went through quite a bit. And um, you mentioned he was had a dishonorable discharge when he was in the military. He was in the Army for three years. He finished as second lieutenant. But because he refused to take a back seat in the back of the bus, because he, he didn't want to give up his seat for a white woman. Yeah, they gave him a dishonorable discharge. But you know what? He fought it and he took it to court. And what happened, the commanders said he was too much of an uppity. You know what? And that's why they did what they did. But he fought that and he won the case. And they reversed and gave him honorable discharge. Yeah, no, this is a really interesting part of the story to me is that on the one hand, Branch Rickey seeks him out because he is so strong and so fierce and a real fighter for himself, for his own dignity and for that of his people. And yet at the same time, Branch senses that he, that in Jackie, there is someone who has the courage and self-control to actually not fight back when he is mistreated as he was on the ball field. And unfortunately, some of that mistreatment took place right here in Florida. Because I want to back up just a minute, because we always focus on 1947, because that's the year that Robinson breaks the color barrier in Major League Baseball as a Brooklyn Dodger. But before he ever played his first professional game in Brooklyn, he actually played in a professional integrated game right here in Florida. During the spring training season of 1946, as a member of the AAA affiliate of the Dodgers, the Montreal Royals. And during that season, they're practicing. You've, if you've seen the film 42, we're going to be showing it in a few weeks or months uh, on Jackie Robinson Day, April 15th. If you've seen the movie, you know that he, he first shows up in Sanford and gets run out of town there to where he's, where he's uh, sent to practice. Later, there are uh, opportunities for the Royal, or it's scheduled games for the Royals to play in DeLand, in Jacksonville. And all, all of a sudden, some curious excuses are made. Lights won't work or who knows what, and the games are canceled. 
Miami tells the Dodgers, don't even bother, you know, thinking about it. But one city says, yes, we will allow a team with an African-American ball player to play at an integrated game. And lo and behold, of all places, it's the city that we now associate with NASCAR, Daytona Beach. And so, Bob, I'm curious, why do you think Daytona, separate and apart from the other Florida cities that refuse to let Robinson play or to put out the welcome mat for him, why Daytona? Why was it different? Well, for one reason, uh, Daytona was the home of a lot of snowbirds at the time, people from the north. This was before NASCAR was invented and began to draw others. And secondly, they had a very liberal newspaper called the Daytona Beach News Journal. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with it. Uh, The dean of the FAMU Journalism School, Dean Ferrier, worked for that newspaper for about 10 years. It was owned by a family named Davidson family. And uh, unfortunately, they lost control of the paper to a chain. But they had a very liberal, pro-desegregation editorial policy there. And that may have helped create a climate that was more welcoming than other places. I wanted to add to what she said concerning the harassment. Mm -hmm. It not only was insults, but in one case, a Jackie Robinson was playing first base, and a St. Louis Cardinal named Enos Slaughter slid in to him trying to... uh, sever his one of, one of his tendons, mm. the Achilles tendon. And so it was actually and that and the bean balls thrown at him at the plate. So it was not just verbal harassment. All right, so we've talked about 46 Robinson plays here in Florida. 47, he breaks the color barrier in, in Brooklyn. 1948, right here in Tallahassee, Fred Flowers is born. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so tell us about your early life. I'm curious to know whether you uh, took an interest in professional baseball, whether you followed Robinson or other players, and, and really who first introduced you to the game of baseball? Okay. There's so much I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> How did I not know that? <laughs> I'm going to try to be responsive to your question first. <laughs> Which is, I understand, how did I get interested in baseball? How did you get interested? Who taught you the game? Well, and Alfred Washington can attest to this. I came up in an era of the black high school where we had football teams, baseball teams, basketball teams. And so my father, we had land. We were in the heart of the city, but we had a, a field. And then in that field, everybody in the neighborhood played ball, football, baseball, basketball, anything with a ball. We played it. Uh, that was our major form of daycare and recreation was playing sports. And so some people had natural ability, more so than others, and those are the ones who went on farther and farther in the process. So I was always a ball player as far as I can remember. Uh, we played ping pong. We just did it all. And so that's how I got interested in it because that's what we did. Uh, I was a football player and a baseball player. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I want to talk to you about, you've heard some comments about Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. And so what does that mean? There are two aspects of that. One is mathematical. You can say there were X number of white players on the team and there's one black. So he broke the color barrier in terms of mathematics. But he did something else that you may not be aware of. 
Jackie Robinson was never a victim. He wasn't a victim of anything. He knew who he was. The victims were the minds of the white racist. That's my view. You won't hear that in a lot of other places, but the victims were the white racist. The impact of Jackie Robinson was he put, it caused a psychological conflict between the mind of a racist who had a, uh, an idea of racial superiority, but now you see this exceptional performance of a black man. How do you reconcile that? We're still struggling with that today. So the greatest contribution of Jackie Robinson was that he made racism taboo. No longer in America, after 400 years of, 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 of laws of segregation, all of a sudden, racism is immoral. Racism is taboo. So that's the greatest accomplishment of Jackie Robinson, is that he brought that the psychological trauma, not in blacks, but in the minds of whites. And so that's where we are today, trying to reconcile this new awareness that racism is taboo with 400 years of history that says just the opposite. That's exactly where we are today. I had to say that. <laughs> you, no, and you said it really well. Yeah. And and I really want us to pick up um, in, a, in just a few minutes on this theme that you introduced here about victimhood and yes. how it figures into this discussion, yes. especially about uh, race and sports. Yes. Before we get there, let me get, let me pull Bob back in, and I want we we talked uh, about Florida and its connection to. Jackie Robinson and his story, the fact that Jackie comes here to play spring training ball. There's a there's a very prominent Floridian in this story, a guy that a lot of folks here in Tallahassee remember or know, or once knew, uh, Red Barber. And so you mentioned earlier uh, the importance of radio to American life during this time. Tell us the story of Red Barber, his connection to Jackie Robinson's story. And before you do, let me just mention as a, a plug, we've already run through the, uh, the, the, the various sponsors for tonight's event. I would be remiss if I failed to mention that among our sponsors tonight is the Red Barber Fantasy Baseball League, which includes Rabbi Jack Romberg, our former uh, board chair, and also includes a guy by the name of Alan Katz, whom many of you may remember, Katz not only was involved in the founding of the Red Barber Fantasy Baseball League, which I happened to get a chance to play in, but he also was a founder uh, of the Village Square. So that's a little segue, a little, a little uh, uh, public service announcement. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Tell us about Red Barber, Bob. Talk about the Catsburg seat or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... Uh I mentioned earlier the importance of radio as of 1947. There were 40 million radios in the country and only 44,000 TV sets. In his great book about baseball, about the Dodgers, The Boys of Summer, one of the better baseball books ever written, Roger Kahn mentioned that you could walk down the streets in Brooklyn and the windows were open and you could never miss hearing the Dodgers game when the Dodgers game was on. And Red Barber was born in Mississippi, but his father was a railroad man, moved to Sanford, Florida, the town that Jackie Robinson got run out of for a spring training game. And uh, he grew up with some of the attitudes uh, that were, I guess, prevalent in the time. He attended the University of Florida, where he broke into radio on the pioneering radio station there, WRUF. And later he worked for Larry McPhail in Cincinnati, and McPhail brought him to Brooklyn, and Branch Rickey kept him on as the announcer. But the thing is, not only was 
acceptance from the teammates an issue, but acceptance from the public also. We think of Brooklyn as a liberal enclave nowadays, but it wasn't always thus. And when listeners in Brooklyn heard this man with a southern accent just calling the games objectively, which was something he had learned in J school in Florida, it, it helped pave the way. And Branch Rickey not only called Jackie Robinson in before the season, but he called in Red Barber, the team's announcer, to tell him what was going to happen and ask him if he had any problem with it. And Red initially said he'd have to think about it, but later he decided to, to go with it. And he was a man of faith and very active in the Episcopal Church or hereabouts where Village Square is meets. So he uh, uh, helped pave the way for Jack and So anyway, I, I think the importance of radio and of Red Barber w- was helpful in smoothing things over. Great. Okay, so we have a connection to, from Jackie Robinson to Daytona and to spring training in Florida, a connection to Red Barber. He's also connected post-career to st- some students at Florida A&M who made history back in 1960. For those of you unfamiliar with the story, in the late 50s, there were bus boycotts here in Tallahassee, much like uh, in Montgomery and elsewhere, and C.K. Steele and others helped to um, integrate Tallahassee city buses. And then in 1960, there were a number of protests surrounding segregated lunch counters. And many of the folks that were um, in the forefront of that movement, much like with the bus boycott, were some FAMU students. And by the way, not just FAMU students, but FAMU co-eds. It's kind of really kind of interesting here. But Patricia Stevens and her sister Priscilla and others were very prominent in making, in leading that effort. And at one point they were arrested, thrown in jail, and they decided that rather than posting bail, they would stage the first sit-in of, or jail-in of the civil rights movement. And to call attention to their cause and to get immediate attention. And among the people who took notice of this protest effort was Jackie Robinson. And he not only sent them letters of encouragement, but he sent all of the students journals so that they could record what was happening to them in jail to have for subsequent use. So, Linda, I'm curious to know, is this the kind of thing that was typical of Jackie Robinson after his life as a Major League Baseball player? How involved was he in civil rights activities, and and, and what all did he do beyond just the connection to FAMU? Jackie Robinson was a, a truly um, a spark when it came to the civil rights movement. He and Dr. King were very close, first of all. Jackie raised the majority of a lot of the money for the civil rights movement, and not just the civil rights movement, but the NAACP. When it came to the sit-ins and the protests, he would have big concerts at his home in Connecticut, jazz concerts, people like Dizzy Gillespie, Cannonball Adderley, um, Ella Fitzgerald, James Brown. Many of these big artists would come to his home and perform. And that's how they raised a lot of the money they did. And after uh, baseball, he was not only just a, a civil rights activist, but he was a politician and a businessman. He start, he established the first Freedom National Bank, the first black bank in New York. He also established the Jackie Robinson Development Corporation to provide housing for the underprivileged. He was special assistant to Governor Nelson Rockefeller. And he got a lot of funding for the civil rights movement through prominent people throughout America. He was well known with President Kennedy, 
uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower. They, many of them participated when they came, when he won the National Baseball Hall of Fame, they had a big affair at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. And all of these people were there. Dr. King wanted to be there, but he couldn't because he was busy with the, the movement at that time with traveling. And it was during the time when Megar Evers was shot and killed. Uh, Dr. King went to the funeral, but Jackie played a big part. He worked behind the scenes and he contacted President Kennedy and he said to him, I want you to please get the Secret Service out to Mississippi because we don't want anything happening to uh, Dr. King. So he did a lot in the civil rights movement and helping with the protests. He came to not only Tallahassee, but I do know he came to Albany, Georgia in 61 and brought money in a suitcase. I remember, I have a picture of it at home. They gave him a parade. They were so happy to see him because, see, the, 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 the parents could not protest because they had to work. So it was the students in college that were the ones who sacrificed and did what they did so that we could have more opportunities who went to jail. But he brought that suitcase of money to bail all. It was about 400 students in jail and he bailed every last one of them out because the, the sheriff had told him if they paid a certain fine, he would let them go. Well, when they paid the fine, he didn't let them go. So Dr. King got in touch with Jackie and told him what was going on. Three churches were bombed in uh, two in Albany, one in Sasser, Georgia, just about 20 miles away, just because they were trying to stand up for what was right. And so as a result of all those churches being bombed and destroyed, they had nowhere to go to worship. And so it was Dr. King that got in touch with Jackie, said, Jackie, would you please share the fundraising part so these people can get their churches? And he did it. He successfully did it in two years. It took him two years to raise the money, but he did it through the very good contacts he had around the country. So Jackie was very instrumental in all of what took place with the civil rights movement. I have many pictures at home of where he was involved with Dr. King. And Dr. King has often said, you know, if it had not been for what Jackie Robinson did back in the 1940s, he would not have accomplished what he did in the 1960s. So we give tribute, we give honor to Jackie for all of the things that he's done, because he's not just a native son of Georgia. Yes, he's a native son of Georgia, but he's our American hero. He made a difference for everybody. He wanted to see everybody have an opportunity, but most importantly, his people, because he knew we deserve better. And he would do whatever he could to stand up for what was right, to fight for his people. Uh, that's very, very well said. Thank you for that. So w- among other things, in addition to all of the things that Linda just mentioned in terms of his involvement with the civil rights movement, there was a time there in the late 50s and early 60s when Jackie uh, wrote a regular column, a syndicated column, that often dealt with race issues. And lo and behold, down here in Tallahassee, Florida, another opinion writer was getting his start with the Fla- Florida Flambeau, uh, Mr. Bob Sanchez. And tell us about about the kind of state of race and sports at that time, because this is, I mean, we just talked about the 60s protests, early 60s protests, the, the segregated lunch counters. You told me a story about how FSU used to run out on the football field that, well, tell, tell, tell us all about what was happening and, and, and some of the things that you did as a columnist. Well, in 1961, I was fresh back from Fort Benning, Georgia, where I'd served two years, and got in trouble for suggesting that they put off limits any place that discriminated against uh, on the basis of race. 
this led the Georgia Senator Russell and George to ask, who is that guy down there? But anyway, because <laughs> they were very powerful uh, congressmen at that time. Anyway, in Tallahassee, the custom at the time for FSU football games, the stadium was segregated. The African-American fans, mostly people who worked for FSU in some staffing capacity, such as the laundry, were allowed to sit in bleachers on what is now the south end zone. The uh, team was led out on the field not by Renegade, but by the Knights of Kappa Alpha fraternity waving the Confederate flag. And the, the FSU band played Dixie at least four or five times during the games, and uh, people were supposed to jump up and yell, I think. Some of us remained seated. And uh, anyway, that was, a, that was the nature. And, also and, and, and that, you, you wrote a column about this protesting well, and, I wrote and a, the Klan I, I show up? I included mention of that flag-waving in a column titled, Is Florida Southern? Because in Sarasota, Florida didn't seem... The farther south you go in Florida, the less southern it is, in a way. Anyway, um, my landlady told me that the Klan had come looking for me after that time. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I'm not sure if she may have been making that up, but it did get a lot of letters to the angry letters to the editor of the Flambeau at the time. But uh, anyway, the racial situation was very... One block from here, there was the one of Tallahassee's two movie theaters was the State Theater, the other was the Florida. Uh, there was a, an African-American theater on Tennessee Street called the Leon Theater, and there were three drive-in movies, but out in the hinterlands. There was a big demonstration by FAMU students and their supporters on the streets out there. And someone broached the, well, the theater has offered to let you all in to, if you sit in the balcony. And the answer was, our cause is not to see movies, it's to be treated with dignity. And that is, you know, it's not to ride the bus to get somewhere, it's to be treated with dignity. And uh, that was kind of the racial climate. The church across the street had a big schism about whether to admit African Americans. And uh, they ran off a couple of preachers who were in favor of it, but now are very desegregated, the First Baptist Church. So uh, that the racial climate in 1960... Florida's state constitution had been passed in 1885 when the Jim Crow regime returned after the period of Reconstruction, and it still was the under the state constitution, desegregation or racial integration was forbidden by the state constitution. Interracial marriage, desegregation of schools, and so forth. And of course, U.S. Supreme Court had overruled some of that, but Florida was very slow to follow suit. It dragged its feet as long as possible as did other southern states regarding school desegregation. Okay, so we're talking about schooling in Tallahassee. This is the world you're growing up in, Fred, right? You're, you're, you're playing ball uh, there in your neighborhood with many of your friends. Go on to Lincoln High School, which at that time was the all-black school. There was no integration yet. Lincoln wasn't yet the Lincoln that we know it of as today. And you get invited to play on an American Legion team, and in effect, before uh, breaking the color barrier at FSU, have an opportunity to do so in youth sports here. I'm curious to know what that was like, whether you were treated well, treated poorly, uh, whether you faced the kind of abuse that uh, Jackie Robinson did. Only Bill Maddox will ask a question like that. (laughs) But it's a very good question. And made me do some serious thinking. Uh, and I had to go back to my longtime friend, Alfred Washington, 
to get the facts straight. But when we graduated high school in 1965, during the summer, we integrated the American Legion team here in Tallahassee. There were five. If Fred Flowers is on the mound, there are six black players. All right, so we played an all-white team from Dothan, Alabama, in Tallahassee. We played an all-white team from Tifton, Georgia, in Tallahassee. We won. We're supposed to have return trips to those cities. And so we had a meeting. The coach called us along the third base sideline. And he said he had something to tell us. And what he told us was that the parents had told him that if they were providing food and sodas for the players, their sons had to play. And so that caused a a little, not a problem, a concern for the coach because the coach said that he was a coach and he was going to play the best players. And so I think the coach resigned at that time. And so we never got a chance to play those away games uh, against those teams. Uh, as a, and I had to dig that up in history, <laughs> thanks well, to your and, question. And, and, and I, I seem to recall you telling me that there was one occasion when the, you guys were instructed to meet the team at such and such location, and that's where y'all were going to be leaving from, and lo and behold, they left from a different location. That's true. Is that right? Okay. I'd be careful, you know, I have to watch my own mind, you know. <laughs> Sometimes that was a fiction of my own mind. <laughs> but but that's a true story. Was it traumatic? Not to me. I didn't really care. I mean I cared, but my how should I say this? My background, my family orientation was so strong that you know, I had a certain sense of confidence that was instilled in me from my family. So I'm looking at all this stuff going around, all around me, and I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with them. I mean, seriously, why are they acting like this? You know, why do they think like that? I now have an understanding of why, but at that time, I really didn't understand it. I can't, I won't say I didn't care, but I was somewhat insulated by my own faith and by my own cultural background that could not be penetrated. And you can call me anything you want. Sticks and stones may break my bone. Is that the way it goes? But words will never hurt. And so as recently as two months ago, I was leaving the federal courthouse and a group of young white boys drove by and they said, hey, N-word. I couldn't believe it. But then, two cars later, another group of young white boys came by and did the same thing. I had not experienced that in 40 years. But I'm completely immune to it because the absence of intelligence is not with me. And and if... If, and if you have any doubts about whether or not it's what he's saying about his family is true, you need to recognize your sister. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> First in the order of birth, <laughs> I will ask my sister, Alpha Flowers Manning, 
Would you please stand? Alpha is the one who played school teacher and taught us all how to read and write before we got to the first grade. So she taught us that, and uh, that has carried us a long way. My third sister, I have another sister, B, who's not here, is Dobby Flowers. Would you please stand? And I led Dobby all the way through FSU to become the queen. Yeah, no, this is, for those of you who don't know, this is a really important part of the story here. Uh, Dobby is not only one who helped integrate Leon High School um, and was uh, featured in that, those who led the way, but then she goes on, and after Fred breaks the color barrier as the first black athlete at FSU, lo and behold, she becomes the first homecoming queen at FSU, and the two of them are commemorated today at the um, on campus with the integration statue and so we are delighted to have both of you and and when he talks about strength of character and resilience if you don't if you're not convinced by him just spend some time with his sisters <laughs> <laughs> no that's true <laughs> dobby has uh, had an outstanding career in corporate america i've been fortunate enough for her to be with me for the last 22 years it's about time for divorce. <laughs> All right. So what I want us to now do is shift gears and talk some about what we can learn from all of this and where things stand. And, Bob, I want to especially direct this to you, but really anyone can chime in as well. Why is it, do you think, that sports has been so influential in improving race relations in America, in giving opportunities for Blacks to compete among whites and and to kind of prove themselves. Give me a sense of why you think Jackie Robinson was such an important figure and others like him. Maybe it's because uh, sports is an area where merit prevails. You know, and regardless of the sport, how well you can do the sport should dictate your circumstances and as in some other works of life. So I think that's one reason. Not that Sports solves, as someone has said, sports does not build character, it reveals it. And that's another way sports has helped because it has revealed the stupidity of racism, but also it's revealed those, the many biographies of people overcoming obstacles of various kinds, poverty, racism, and other uh, problems in their lives. So if you can go and prove yourself on the field, no one cares what kind of background, whether you're a child of privilege or not, whether you're this color or that. If you can do the job, if you can score the point, if you can outperform others, you get the opportunity. That's what Bear Bryant discovered. (laughs) Sam Bam Cunningham in 1970. You may remember that uh, he uh, deliberately, we think, scheduled a game against Southern Cal home of the Trojans. Thank you. And uh, knowing they were going to get whacked. And then he kind of went to state authority saying, you know, we really need to have some of our Alabama folks on the team, regardless of race. And remember, this is a state where George Wallace has stood in the state in, in the schoolhouse door. So uh, to have Bear Bryant who was just a notch below sainthood in Alabama, I guess, until Nick, until Nick Saban came along, or Nick, Sa- Nick Satan, we Miami Dolphin fans regard. Anyway, this, this was a breakthrough. And a lot of 
people who at first, uh, now, you know, they're so religiously devoted to their football, college football teams and their alma maters, that they really have overcome some of their racial feelings. Go ahead, please, jump in. Okay, the, the question is, why does integration first happen in sports? And, and there's a reason for that, because I think change comes to America first through sports. Well, why is that? And here's my discernment of why that is. If, you, if you're in the, an arena and you see somebody playing a sport, you expect, you're a spectator. It's not threatening. It's not in your space, in your face. So white America could have first appreciate the performance of black on the athletic fields first because it was non-threatening. It was not, it's very different from sitting next to someone in a bus, a drinker from the, the same water fountain, that kind of stuff. So the reason change comes first to sports is that it's less threatening. And then eventually it migrates to the mainstream society. And that's been the pattern all throughout our history. And so that's my take on I think there's something to this because not only do we see this kind of um, spectator phenomenon in sports, we see it also in entertainment. And you could make an argument that the Dizzy Gillespie's and Billie Holiday's and others of the world help pave the way as well in the entertainment industry in kind of changing race relations and, and people's concepts of race. The thing, though, that sports has over other forms of entertainment is that it's measurable. And so, yeah, you can believe that Billie Holiday is the best singer and I can believe someone else is. And there's really no way to settle the dispute. But when it comes to sports, you have an outcome at the end of the game. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Somebody scores more points, scores more runs, steals more bases. And it becomes clear pretty quickly if you're looking at the kind of objective measurement of sports, who is really performing well. And in that arena, it, as Bob said, it's kind of a pure meritocracy or close close to it you really do get a chance to see who has what it takes, and it becomes undeniable when someone is able to hold their own as Jackie did. Jump and, in, Linda. And, you know, Jackie, he truly was a catalyst. He was he was a pioneer of human dignity, and he was a champion for civil rights. And one of the things about him when he played uh, with the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, he led those Dodgers to six championships. And it was in 1955 that they won the World Series. Uh, because of a lot of what he did. As I mentioned before, he was good at stealing the bases and he was good at distracting the pitcher. So they couldn't concentrate on what they needed to do to try to make him strike out. So he was, he just was so talented, but he had a mind that was incredible. Um, when it came to doing what needed to be done without having to say it, so to speak. You know, and one thing I wanted to mention when he came down to Georgia during the civil rights movement, he came to Cairo. Actually, it was in uh, the 40s. It was for spring training. He was on his way to Florida. So he stopped through Cairo and uh, they gave him a nice big parade and they even took up money to give to him. And he said, I don't want the money. I don't want. Please keep your money. I don't want that money. They said, well, we got to give you something because we're so proud of what you've done. And he looked across the street in Cairo and it was this old country store. And hanging in the front was this old, um, it was a smoked uh, ham. And he said, all I want is that smoked ham sitting over there. <laughs> and they couldn't believe it. So they got the ham. They brought it to him, packaged it and everything. He took it back to New York to Rachel. And Rachel, being a Cal, she was born in California. She didn't know nothing about the smoked ham. <laughs> and when he brought that ham in the house, she said, Jack, 
Because she told me this story. She said, now, I know you're not bringing me no spoiled ham. I am not going to eat this. This is no good. He said, no, baby, this is smoke. This is from Georgia. And she actually wanted to throw it away. So he had to call one of his neighbors who were from Georgia. And they came over and they took care of it. But she had she didn't want to have any part of it. But um, Rachel, she she's told many, many stories about how things were and, and how it was. Sports was the, the favorite. Baseball was the favorite pastime in, the, in those days. And when Jackie broke that color barrier, being the only African-American playing, all he had to do was walk on the field. And the blacks who were there, they would just cheer him on and they would just all call his name and tell him how much they loved him. And many times they would just let him know, we got your back because they knew what he was going through, being alone, being isolated, being called all kind of names all day long. And when they would take trips to other games out of the out of the state, guess what? Many of them flew to where they had to go. But Jackie and Rachel, they had to catch a bus. They weren't allowed on the plane. And they took the bus. They they endured all of this because they knew a better day was coming. So he was very strong. He was very courageous in quiet in a quiet way. But he wasn't going to give up because he knew things were going to get better. But today, how far have we come now? Say that we're going to get there. <laughs> we're going to get there in a minute. But I want to ask you a question about something that you said earlier, and that's this: in, in thinking about kind of the role of sports and, and why it is so powerful. One of the things that I really enjoyed from a favorite sportscaster, African-American sportscaster of mine, uh, Jason Whitlock, one of the things that he says is that not only is there no crying in baseball, we all know that from a league of their own, but there's really very little tolerance for whining in sports. That, you know, the Saints got a time to complain about that horrible call but I was listening to sports talk radio today, and people were saying, all right, get over it. You got the ball later. You won the toss for, for the overtime. You had a chance to win the game. Yeah, you got – there was a terrible call. We all agree. But there comes a point when in sports we say, suck it up. Go get it done. We don't want to hear your complaining. Everybody's got a sob story. And and it reminded me that in many ways what, what Whitlock is saying is that there isn't a lot of tolerance for this kind of victim mentality in sports because the ones who succeed have to overcome adversity and you you alluded to this earlier and i want you to talk more about kind of the the importance of sports in that respect i'm gonna talk about that but i gotta address (laughs) something that he said about this 1970 game between southern cal and university of alabama that was a watershed moment in American intercollegiate sports, and I think you might agree with me, because his name was Sam Bam Cunningham. He ran over the Crimson Tide for like almost 300 yards. He didn't tell you what Bear Bryant really said. (laughs) 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 In order to catch one, I got to get one. That's what he said. They could run, so in order to catch him, I got to get me some like him. And that... I'm going to suggest is the watershed moment in American intercollegiate intercollegiate sports that eventually led to the downfall of HBCUs and the athletes who once went to HBCUs. Because what happened is that Bayer Bryant and other coaches, they began to raid the high schools for the black talent. And all that black talent, when I was coming up, I watched Bob Hayes play, Willie Dixon, Willie Gallimore, all the super football players. 
But when Sam Bam Cunningham came along, the white coaches knew what they had to do to be competitive. So one of the effects of integration, the pattern was set with the Negro Baseball League. The white league raised the black team. The black team dies. The white institution grows stronger and richer. That's exactly where we are today in intercollegiate sports. The HBCUs have gotten weaker, less talent. It's the same talent, but at a different school. There's a tremendous metaphor that describes this situation, and that is the metaphor that I alluded to later, the metaphor of the slave plantation, in which the labor is exerted by the players, but the money in intergalactic sports that makes the cash register ring comes from the exploits of the athletes. And so there's a striking parallel in this metaphor of slavery and the explanation of today's sports. I just had to get that in when you mentioned Sam Bam Cunningham because that truly is a watershed moment in American intergalactic sports. And you asked me what now? You, you just... <laughs> You you just you just made a great case for uh, paying of college players, yeah? Yeah. I, no, I yeah, I, okay, okay. We should probably have a forum on that at some point because that's a great topic that I would love to explore. Yeah. But I, I want to get to Linda's question, which is this: How do we view where we are today? Do should we give more emphasis to the progress that's been made, recognizing that you know it's been a, a sometimes crooked path? But the pro- should we give more emphasis to the progress that's been made or to the distance yet to go? And, and really, let me throw it out. L- let's hear from Linda first, but I'd, I'd welcome any and all of you speaking to that question. Well, first of all, I, I asked the question to you all. If you don't know where you've come from, how do you know where you're going? And yes, both of those questions that you just answered are important. To know from whence we've come in order to know how far we're going to go and where we're going to go. And I think it's important we know our history of what occurred so we don't repeat the history again. And I see that a lot in even in today's society. As a physician, I'm seeing so many less African-American physicians that I did in my generation and generations before me are black males are declining when it comes to education. If you look at the historically black colleges and look at the ratio of male to females, the females far outnumber the males. Most of our young males are in prison, are dropped out of school. And I always mentor as many males as I can because I want them to know about Jackie Robinson. I want them to know the story that yes, his own father, deserted the family, and he was the youngest of five, only 18 months old, when he left them in Georgia for another woman who was also married in Cairo, Georgia, and they went to Florida. Jackie never saw or heard from his father entire his entire life. The only time he saw his dad was when he, had a, he went to the funeral. He was the only family member that went to the funeral in Florida. He just wanted to see what he looked like. But the thing that I'm saying is I, as, as a physician, I, I see, I've seen many kids, I've seen many young males, and I cannot believe the number of children, young people that grew up in single parent homes. 
And when you ask them about their father, well, tell me about your dad. Did he have any medical problems? I don't want to talk about it. Well, what's wrong? Well, he didn't do anything for us. He left my mom or he was never in his life or their life. And so you wonder why these young people are doing what they do. They're hurting inside. That's the biggest part of it. They're hurting and they don't know how to deal with it. And I tell them the story of Jackie Robinson. I said, let me tell you about Jackie Robinson. His dad left him when he was 18 months old and five other, four other siblings. And his mother had the sense enough to know she wasn't going to be no sharecropper no more. She wasn't going to do all that hard labor and get nothing out of it. So, yes, her brothers helped her. They, they made enough money to send home to bring her and her children to California because her brother told her. He said, if you want to witness what heaven is like, come on out here to California. <laughs> That's why they went to Pasadena. And they left on a 12 a.m. train. She left on a horse and buggy and left that plantation and said, we're not coming back again. But she came back to see the family, but never to see him. He didn't even know where they had gone. And all the family members act like, well, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know they left. Where I don't know where they are. But everybody knew. They knew. But he was very mean to her. But the thing I'm saying is, just like Jackie went through this, it hurt the family. It hurt him to see his mother hurt. But Jackie turned that negative into a positive. He made a difference for a lot of people in America. And just like he turned that into a positive, he could have gone into a little hole and got depressed and said, my daddy don't love me. He don't even come see us. He doesn't even call us. He don't even send us nothing. And a lot of these kids are looking for these these kind of things, materialistic things and looking for love. But Jackie didn't get that. But look what he did. Look what he did because of his mom. His mom was a very Christian woman who had who taught them faith, not only in God, but faith in family and faith in education and faith. Yes, in America, we're going to make a difference. She was a very progressive woman who came from a progressive family. And that's why I'm proud. She's my cousin. Let me throw it open to see if there are any questions that we have from the audience. I've got more that I can ask, but we've got a gentleman here that would like to ask a question. That was one of the things that Ranch Ricky told uh, Jackie when they met. He said, Jack, you know, you're going to endure some difficulties and it's not going to be easy what you're about to do. And, you know, and Jack said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you cannot fight back. You cannot retaliate. You cannot say anything. I don't care what they do to you. And he said, what do you mean? You want a baseball player who doesn't have the guts enough to stand up and speak out and fight back? And Branch Ricky said, yes. He said, because if you do, that is going to set your people back another 10 years before they're given another opportunity to break a color barrier. And that's why he didn't. If you look at pictures of Jackie Robinson, there's a biography that's written by Arnold Rapper said he came down to Cairo and I met he and Rachel uh, and took them around where the roots were, where Jackie was born and told them some of the stories that I was told. And if you look at the picture on that cover or any picture of him a few years before he passed, he was only 53 when he died. Okay, 53. He played in the the Brooklyn Dodgers for only 10 years, and that's because his health started failing him. He developed diabetes, high blood pressure. He had a mild stroke during the civil rights movement when he was uh, president of vice president of Chalk Full of Nuts, which was a coffee uh, shops all throughout New York, and they made the best donuts. But anyway, he hi- he hired 
all the people that worked in there were blacks. He made sure that he opened those doors for them. And he did so much, but his health was failing him. And the reason was because you all don't realize when you are stressed to the T and you can't fight back and you can't open up and voice why you're, you know, what these things are, they're doing to you. And all he had, only person he had to go to was Rachel. It does something to your body. That's what kills people when you're under stress. And we're seeing that today. There's a high risk in suicide. There's a high risk of mental illness. I've never seen so much mental illness in my life in young people. And it's because of the stress that people are dealing with and they don't know how to cope. We're all going to have stress, but how do we cope? And he coped the best way he could. He was completely white-headed. Jackie looked like he was about 70 or 80 years old when he died. He was only 53. And the day that he died, Rachel told me they were in Connecticut at their home. She was downstairs that morning cooking breakfast. He ran down the stairs calling her name and she went out to meet him. And he said, Rachel, I love you. And he died. He just passed out. He had a heart attack, a major heart attack. But it was because of all of what he endured through those years from the age of 28 up until then, because he started out in baseball when he was 28, as far as the major league goes. People, stress kills. He gave his life for this country, for his people. He should have been around many, many more years. He died in 1972. 53. All right, another question here. Just as a follow-up to the last question that Bill asked, understanding the role that Jackie Robinson played, not just on the field, but also in the streets um, as an activist, um, what do you see in, in the modern times and sort of the current discourse around activism in sports and also what you all have shared earlier about the role of sports in moving the agenda, moving the needle on race relations. Do we see that in the modern times? And also, how does activism play a role in that? Should activism be on the field, on the court, in the sports, or should it be on the streets? Is there a bifurcation or is it all in one? And do we see an advancement in that relation? That's a lot. That's a great question. I think one, one difference now is that athletes have a microphone of their own, in a sense. Uh, they tweet, they uh, have their own websites, all sorts of access to the media, and therefore they're, when they are engaged in activism, such as those who um, were trying to support Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback who is homeless as far as the NFL is concerned, they uh, avenues for their advocacy. That's my point. Uh, if I could comment briefly, I guess the question is, uh, to what extent is the modern athlete politically active or something like that? All right. There are people, there are two schools of thought on that. There's one group of athletes who have the potential to exert a tremendous amount of political power, but they choose to remain silent. One is Michael Jordan. The other is Tiger Woods. They have... The, uh, it's their discretion to do what they want with their uh, abilities and so forth. But in terms of activism, those two superstars choose to be apolitical. Contrast that 
with somebody like LeBron James and other people who are activists. So it just depends on the personality. They certainly have the money to, to become very influential persons, but they're, they don't have the psychological freedom and the monetary freedom to do so. They are not organized. Can you imagine the power of the athletes if they have the audacity to organize? So even if you look at college campuses, the athletes didn't used to be that way, uh, but the athletes tend not to be involved, and there's a reason for that. Uh, They have the rigors of the athletic games to participate in, but they're also under strict control of the, the coaches through the scholarship system. So back in my day, the athletes were very active uh, politically. Uh, at FSU, uh, there was John Burke, who was the, well, I was the second BSU president. There was John Burke, who was a great basketball player. And he was a BSU president. That has changed somewhat today. I just think that it's a matter of what you think is important. Contemporary athletes have the money to do whatever they want to do. They just don't have the insight to realize their own potential. That's my take on it. Doctor, um, as a family member, I'd love to hear your reflections on the movie 42, how the family felt about that. Hollywood always takes liberties with everything that they do. But I, I, obviously, it was a great movie. But did they take a lot of liberties? Did they get enough of the true Jackie into that? Certainly, uh, his demeanor that I remember as a child and, and lived through reflected the kind of person that you talked about. His value system was the type of person who didn't seem to me to need to scream and yell and be at the front of protest. I didn't know of his act- activism like that, but I certainly saw him as an immense figure in my life in breaking barriers down in a incredible way. But your thoughts yeah. about the movie? Yeah, uh, the family was, they thought it was a very good movie. They thought it reflected a lot of what he went through and how he reacted uh, primarily. But the thing is, is that there's so much more to it, to the story that wasn't so much revealed. Um, Rachel doesn't like to talk about the negative. She focuses only on the positive because the negative is not going to make a difference now. It happened. And I tell her, well, we need to know the story. We need to know what he went through. Because hopefully that will touch somebody else's soul to say, I went through something similar to that. And I didn't react the way he did. But I need to think about it. And maybe make a change. You know, Jackie, he he motivated so many people to be better than what they were. And that's what I love so much about him. Because he helped make me a better person. And when people told me I couldn't do something, Oh, don't ever tell me that, because that's what I'm going to show you. I'm going to do it. Good evening. I appreciate you all having this forum today. And I would really say that I'm actually surprised when I saw the advertisement for tonight's event, how many, uh, how diverse our crowd is. I'll put it that way. And um, hearing the stories of Jackie Robinson and, of course, Fred Flowers being a local, a local hero of sorts uh, over at Florida State. They say that Sunday is one of the most segregated hours in America. I think take the religion part off and talk about sports on Saturday afternoons from 12 to three, three to six or eight to 11. When you're looking at those games, what I hope that we are learning here today is that by when we get a chance to cheer for someone who who doesn't look like us and it gives us a chance to brag and boast about 
our institutions of higher learning sometimes. What are we doing once we leave those particular venues to try to still get to know each other? And that's always just been, I worked a lot of years at Florida Indian University. And of course, I attend uh, games across the street as well. But I just hope that as we hear these stories, we just start realizing that, you know, when we can cheer and cheer and cheer for three hours for a kid, but if that same kid or his cousin was on a corner going down Monroe Street or Tennessee Street, would we still communicate with them? And so I think to your point about sports, and I wanted my son to come and hear about the legendary Jackie Robinson, so I'm glad he's here and he's a baseball guy over in Capitol Park. But I just think that as we are in rooms like this and we're talking about this and think about sports brings us together for a moment. But when we leave those confines of those venues, if we're still not being connected, trying to be connected, it's, it's really kind of failing us. And so, to, you know, to Fred's point, institutions are not just making a lot of money. The the prestige of institutions are going. I'm not saying these institutions don't have great college professors and staff and et cetera, but I'm talking about the prestige of institutions are going through the roof because of what happens on a Saturday afternoon. And I just think that if we can start appreciating that uh, difference, but hearing some of those stories, it'll allow us to become better. So I'm just curious kind of what you think about that, but that's my take on it. I thank you so much for being here this evening, ma'am, and uh, Fred for sharing your story. And uh, hopefully uh, forums like this will allow Cities like Tallahassee, which I can see be one of the best in America, are from Chicago, but I've been in 30 years, and I think it's one of the best cities in America, and forms like this allow us to become better people. I, I want to just mention something when he was saying that, you know, Jackie Robinson was always quoted, life is not important except for the impact it has on other lives. And in saying that, he was saying to us that we must get out there and do our part, not wait on somebody else. We can make a difference. And as our great president, Obama, Barack Obama, has often said, if you want to see change, you are the change that you want to see. And I, I thought about that. I said, you know, that's what I've been doing all this time. And I didn't realize that's, that's exactly what it is. All the years that I, when I came back to Cairo, Georgia in 96, there were no black physicians. There were no female physicians. I was the first black or white. And it was not easy. I was not all that welcomed, but I didn't care about that because I had, that was my family roots in that area out in the country in the, in the sticks of Georgia, which I was very proud of. And I came back for that reason. And a lot of people try to discourage me, but I didn't give up. I was going to do whatever I had to do, even though I didn't make a lot of money. I'm still paying off student loans now, but I'm doing what makes me happy. And, you know, so, it's up to us. Whatever you see that's going on in life that does not please you or is not going the way you would like it to be, instead of complaining, get your butt out there and do something. Help somebody else. And I think about when I was in Sebring, Florida, going to school, and I would be walking home with my classmates, and there would be alcoholics sitting out there on the on the street, you know, by the, the, the candy stores where we would stop. And I did not disrespect them at all because you know what? They would always tell us, all right, you kids, you better get your education. Be the best you can be even though they didn't have it, but I respected them because I appreciated that. And I could still hear those voices echoing in my, in my, in my head now. Whenever I wanted to get discouraged when I was in medical school and I thought I couldn't do it, I think about what they would say and what my family would always say. 
Don't let nothing stop you from your dreams. And you have to instill that into others, into your young, your, your child and other people. And look at these boys walking out there in the streets with their pants hanging down and, you know, talk to them, men. They need you, not the mamas. They need the men to get out there and start talking and mentoring these kids. And we need more of that to go on. And that's what I try to do. You know, as mentor our young people, let them know I didn't get where I am by myself. There were many people in my life that made it happen for me. And I don't forget those people. And just like they helped me, I reach back and help somebody else. And if we did enough of that in this country, we wouldn't have the mess we got going on today. Okay, we've got time for one more question from the audience. I'm then going to give each of you a chance to give us maybe 30 seconds on what we can most learn from uh, Jackie Robinson. But first, audience question right here. Thank you, panelists, for a great discussion this evening. I've always wondered if, uh, if it hadn't been for Jackie Robinson and his impact, could we had a Martin Luther King just a few years later? Did I not say that earlier? I said that very same thing. I told them that Martin, Dr. King, I didn't know Dr. King. I knew his father, Daddy King. We called him Daddy King because he would always come to my uncle's church in Detroit and preach. And, and I got to know him that way. And one of the things he often told me about Jackie was that his son would often say, had it not been for Jackie Robinson and what he did, and all of what he went through, there would never have been a Dr. Martin Luther King to do what he did. So he always gave tribute to Jackie for what he did so that he could do what he did. And so, yes, had it not been for Jackie Robinson, there would not probably have been a Dr. King to do what he did. Okay. And the civil rights movement and moving our country forward. Very good. Very good. All right. 30 seconds each. What lessons can we learn from Jackie Robinson to take away? From tonight. 30 seconds. <laughs> well, I don't mind starting because I can talk about him all night long. But I'm just going to say in 30 seconds, first of all, Jackie Robinson, if, if I took away anything, that he was a man that knew who he was and whose he was. He never forgot God. He never forgot from where he came from, the sticks of Georgia. Because that was always on his mind to do something to make things better in the South for all people. So having that great faith and that belief in God that was instilled with him through his mother is what made him the great man he is. And that is a lesson that I have never forgotten. That with God, anything is possible. Very good. Jump in, Fred. <laughs> Bill, your 30 second rule. <laughs> 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 just before I talk about what I think or the lessons that we learned from Jackie Robinson, I, I would like to ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard the name of Moses Fleetwood Walker? Yeah. So you know that Jackie Robinson was not the first black man to play Major League Baseball. The first African-American to play Major League Baseball was Moses Fleetwood Walker in the year 1884. So it took another 67 years before Jack Robinson came along to break that barrier. So I just want to give some play to Moses Fleetwood Walker. All right. What are the lessons that we learned from Jackie Robinson? And I think Professor Terry Coonan is going to recognize where some of this comes from. One thing that Jackie Robinson, um, one lesson he taught us is the power of one. One person 
can change the world. One person can take a match and set a whole forest on fire. One person, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Jackie Robinson, can change the world. Then another lesson he teaches us is the power of now. Jump in right now and make a difference right now rather than succumbing to your own fears. Another lesson is the power of many, which is broader and it suggests cooperation and cooperation among us all to eventually get to the mountaintop that Martin Luther King talked about. And what I'm going to say to you next, you might find a little shocking because I'm going to quote the words of the president of Florida State University, John Thrasher. He was asked to comment, he was commenting on the subject of rights to all people, no matter what race or sex. And this is what President John Thrasher said. He said that based on his many experiences as the president coming in contact with all different people and races, that he had become a changed man. And that what he had learned were three things. Respect, civility, and Lord knows we need more civility in our political discourse. But the other thing President Thrasher said that we need acceptance. Now that's very insightful. He didn't say we need more tolerance. Because if I say I'm going to tolerate you, that means I think I'm better than you. I'm just going to let you do your thing and I'm going to tolerate it. But he had the insight to speak of the need for acceptance. And so those three core values, respect, civility, and what was acceptance, acceptance <laughs> are the core values that we can take with us from the life and legacy of Jackie Robinson. Very nice. You want to jump in, Bob? Yeah, I can't top that. I'll just say this. The era in which we live will be chronicled at some point in the future, just as the period when Jackie Robinson was broke the color line was being chronicled. And the people that resisted were written about. The, the people who were heroic, like Pee Wee Reese, eventually embraced him in a, during a game. He was a Kentuckian, too. The important thing is to kind of be on the right side of history. Sometimes you may be the only one, the power of one. Sometimes you may be inspiring the many. Very nice. All right, so gentlemen, clear the stage. We're going to let Linda close us out. I just want to say one last thing. Um, of course, Rachel, his, his wife, is still living. She's 96 years old. She started the Jackie Robinson Foundation the year after he, he died in 1973, which still is doing very well. They have the Jackie Robinson Scholars Program where they give $30,000 to a rising senior that's going to go to accredited four-year college. Uh, of course, you have to apply online. Uh, they've given over $83 million in scholarships since 1973. And just so that you know, since this is the 100th birthday for Jackie Robinson, the Jackie Robinson Museum is under construction. This will continue the legacy of Jackie Robinson. It's going to be in New York City where the Jackie Robinson Foundation is, uh, but it's going to be a huge, huge museum. Um, it's going to have a lot of memorabilia. The curator has called and talked with me about a lot of things down here in Georgia. 
And as I mentioned, there were many things that I did to try to bring honor to Jackie because no, nothing had been done to honor him until I came back here in 96. And that was the 50th anniversary in 97. I had the highway renamed, um, signs put up downtown stating the birthplace of Jackie Robinson, put a state historical marker with the help of U.S. Senator Max Cleland, wrote the script for that. And I'm just saying this to say it doesn't take an army to do things. One person can make a difference. And so when these ideas and visions came to me, I still want to build a multicultural center, an amphitheater. I want to have a baseball field to bring spring training. What better place to come for spring training for Major League Baseball than Cairo, Georgia? I'm serious. Okay, so these are the visions that I had when I came, but a lot of people didn't see it. I wanted to put a statue downtown in Cairo, Georgia, to bring tourism here. These people don't realize when you honor somebody like Jackie, do you know what that does for your community? They don't see it. And I wanted to have this statue. I even had Sandy Proctor, you all may know, who's a sculptor here in Tallahassee. He did this, uh, what this, the statue would look like in, in cardboard. He brought it in to the county commissioners in co- the courthouse. That was the largest turnout they ever had at the courthouse when I went before them to try to get this done. Well, they never told me no, but they never said yes either. But unfortunately, as a result of my wanting a statue there, which nobody ever wanted anything on the courthouse lawn, they ended up a couple of months later putting a Confederate memorial. So I'm just saying this. That doesn't destroy what I want to do. I'm going to still pursue it when the time is right. It's just not right yet. But God will make a way because if there's a will, there is a way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cue the music and away we go. This is one of Jackie Robinson's favorite songs, If I Can Help Somebody. As I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a song. If I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. Hey there, it's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I don't know about y'all, but I thoroughly enjoyed this program and I'm thankful to all the participants for making it so interesting and educational. Once again, This is a program that has made me think deeply about how I've viewed things for most of my life. And it has me now considering another perspective, a broader view of Jackie Robinson's role in our history. I've been thinking about what he had to endure and how he had to be silent about it. And this has made me realize that I've had the luxury of only paying attention to the positive aspects of Jackie Robinson. I've been able to focus on the glory of it all, but not the hard work or the surrounding circumstances or the personal experience of this hero and the personal toll it took on him and his family, the isolation that so many pioneers feel. And also I've been thinking about the role that he played in empowering others that tie in with Rosa Parks. That is just remarkable and so interesting, something I did not know. And that reminds me of how we talk about the need to have leaders and heroes who look like the diverse children of our country. It seems to be a perfect example of why that's so important. A public figure like Jackie Robinson doing this very hard thing and then having a ripple effect all over the country. It's truly remarkable. You know, I happen to be in Washington, D.C. with my family right now as I record this. And when we were in one of these Smithsonian gift shops, 
We saw two postcards by the checkout area, one of our president and one of our vice president. And listen, you guys, when I saw Kamala Harris's face smiling at me right there by checkout, I was all of a sudden overwhelmed with emotion. No matter your politics or who you voted for, it's a really big deal and a huge moment in our history. And I think programs like this help to expand the narrative and educate us on the importance of our past and the work still to do in our future. As we close out here, we'd like to offer a huge thank you to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free. We have an excellent lineup of programs coming to you as part of this series this summer and throughout the rest of 2021 right here on Village Squarecast. So thanks again to Florida Humanities for making it possible. You can subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts so that you'll see all these programs when they come out. And to stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. Speaking of what's happening at the Village Square, have you heard about our summer read? You can join us in a tradition we call our Summer Swim Against the Tribe. We ask you to put on your metaphorical floaties, put down the usual polarized reading list, and jump into the deep end of the pool to better understand the people we share a country with. This year's featured summer read is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out by journalist, superstar, and big thinker Amanda Ripley. Amanda tells us great stories, all while teaching us how to heal our hearts and our country. So we hope you'll pick up a copy of Amanda's incredible book and sign up right now to hang out with her personally at the Village Square's digital High Conflict Book Club event on Thursday, August 26th. Check out our website for all the details at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you joining us for Jackie Robinson from Victim to Victor. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.